and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. This is the show where we wade into the political landscape and go in search of Australia's culture warriors. In a world where the Liberal Party has forgotten what it means to be conservative and the Labor Party serves the interests of corporate giants rather than the working class, the soul of the nation has been left in the hands of minor parties. I say minor parties, but the truth is they are making a huge impact on the future of Australia. Joining us today is Queensland Senator Malcolm Roberts from Pauline Hanson's One Nation, one of the most enduring political brands in politics. Senator Roberts, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me as your guest, Alexandra. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Senator, you have an enormous following and significant presence in the Australian political landscape, which is quite an achievement given that uh, our fellow citizens would struggle to name many of your peers. Do you enjoy connecting with the people of Queensland who you represent? Because you do appear to make a significant effort to visit remote communities and get your feet on the ground. We love, Pauline and I are both, both similar in that we love to go out to the communities and to listen. You know, in my first speech, I started in the Senate with the words, as a servant to the people of Queensland and Australia. My job is to go and listen and then to represent the people in Parliament as their voice. That's my job, full stop. And Pauline sees it exactly the same way. And, you know, I, I get pulled up in supermarkets, I get pulled up in, in, airline, in uh, airports, People are saying, thank you, thank you for doing that. I'm just doing my job. And it, it, it's nice to get, get some uh, appreciation, but the, the point of what I'm saying is really that it's so rare that most politicians are serving their party, not the people. Well, I know. I mean, that is one of the problems that people are frustrated about, where their politicians are always in Canberra, but they're never in their home constituencies, and that is a, a bit of a trouble for Australian politics. Now, you've been travelling around recently. Where have you been last? We went from uh, Brisbane. This was in the winter break. We went from Brisbane up to Gympie, uh, Maryborough, uh, gee, Monto, places around that area, Biloela, we were in Biloela, Mara. Then we went up to uh, Rocky, sorry, we went out west to uh, Blackwater, Springshore, Emerald, Rocky, uh, Gladstone, Mackay, Townsville, Moorumbah, um, Longreach, Emerald again, Longreach, um, then back down to Charleville, and then Roma, Mitchell. And I'm sure I've missed a few names there. <laughs> well, that's the amazing the thing about it. We did a big circuit. Queensland is such a huge state. I think people forget that your job as a senator is made all the more difficult by the tyranny of distance. But there is a feeling in Australia that for the best part of 60 years, the nation has been in caretaker mode with politicians coming and going without much impact. But today, Senator, there's a new feeling that we are on the cusp of something, a, a new age of political upheaval. Do you share that feeling that something's different in politics at the moment? I don't really stop and think about that, and I haven't noticed it, Alexandra, so, yeah, so don't, don't uh, please forgive me, I don't know that I can answer your question. I haven't sensed anything really different at the moment. What I've sensed is a, is a, a appalling sense of doom with the politics in this country. The number one problem in our country is shoddy governance, and it's been that way for several decades, as you pointed out. 
And the number one problem with this shoddy governance is the lack of data, the contradiction of data. People just don't make decisions in politics, don't make policies, don't make legislation based upon hard data. They contradict the data, they contradict reality, they go on vibes, they go on buzzwords, they go on newspaper headlines, they, they go on the feelings, and it's just completely nonsensical. It's, it's driven our country into the ground. Our energy policy is being trashed. Our COVID policy has dest destroyed our health sector. I mean, right across the whole sector, the banks are running the joint. Um, so we can see that the politicians are not serving the people because they're telling lies. We've got uh, Simon Birmingham pushing climate change when there's no evidence for it. We've got Penny Wong pushing climate change. There's no evidence for it. Um, you know, this, this, and it's doing enormous damage. The last place I went to actually in, in uh, North Queensland was uh, Chilumban, uh, Friends of Chilumban near Ravenshoe, where they're, they're about to install more solar, uh, sorry, wind turbines. And what we've got people in North Queensland, Central Queensland, Southern Queensland, Southern New South Wales, Western Victoria, all over the Eastern states, just being destroyed. Their habitats are being destroyed. The human habitat, which is the most important of all, the environment, the natural environmental habitat, that's being destroyed by wind turbines and solar panels that are destroying our entire economic fabric, our entire economic foundation in this country, which means our future security. This is being torn up in the name of, of uh, global warming and the UN's 2050 net zero. It's completely crap. And, and, uh, and, and politicians are, are watching electricity prices go through the roof, not realising they're causing it. And so what we've got to do is get back to hard data to make our decisions. A completely crap is a really great way of describing what's currently going on with our energy systems at the moment. Because you're right, energy is unaffordable and it's getting scarce because of these policies. But uh, when I meant about this idea that we're on a new age, is it is the first time that I have seen, at least in my lifetime, this emergence of social justice politics and various collectivist ideologies that are operating under different names, all claiming to operate for the greater good, so to speak. And for me, it's alarming this idea that we might be living through the opening chapters of a completely new political cataclysm, some kind of new system of politics that will replace the democracy that we've grown to know and love. Now, there are a lot of politicians who, having seen this change going on in our uh, political systems, they're resting on the ghosts of the past. They think names like Menzies will save them, that these great old parties are the same as they were before. But Senator, those leaders are dead. The ghosts have a history and not coming to save politics. Is it time for the people of Australia to start paying more attention to what's going on in politics? Because as you rightly pointed out, political decisions make very real differences to people's life, especially in things like the energy crisis. The answer to your question is yes, <laughs> exactly. Because the problem in our country, Alexandra, is that the people have stopped doing their role, stopped fulfilling our role. And I say the people, I mean we, as the citizens of Australia, have, no, have stopped doing our role. Citizens of Australia elect the government. They're, the government is responsible to the citizens. The government is, is, uh, has, has the authority to govern on behalf of the citizens, for the citizens. And what we've seen is the government is taking over as a totalitarian dictatorship. The COVID mismanagement showed that the people are afraid of government. That is the symptom of a totalitarian dictatorship. Totalitarian dictatorship is when the people are afraid of government. In a true democracy, the government is afraid of the people. And what's happened is the people have just signed over the, the authority to run this country 
to a bunch of halfwits, crooks, and, and gutless, ignorant, stupid people in Canberra on their behalf. We yep. all know that the Liberal Party and the Labor Party are both run by, by one or two people, and, and we know that everyone just follows like sheep. The only difference between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party in policy, well, there's no difference in policy, but the only difference between the two parties is that in the Labor Party, no one speaks up. They just follow the, the instructions. In the Liberal Party, a few people speak up. I mean, less than a handful of people speak up. So what we've got is the people of Australia have, have handed over the reins and have forgotten that they are in charge and they need to be holding, we as a people need to be holding our politicians accountable. Now, I feel very, very strongly about that. No, and you should indeed feel strongly about that. But let us return to you, Senator. You haven't always been a political creature. You studied engineering and worked as a mining engineer in Queensland. What was it about engineering that led you into a career uh, working in the coal industry? Is it, has it been beneficial for your role as Senator and uh, do you miss it? I do miss the coal industry. It's a lot of fun, uh, especially the underground sector where I worked as a coal-faced miner. To, to go back, um, I, was in, I came from a mining family, so I, it was in my blood. My grandfather in Wales, my father in Wales, India and Australia, uh, and then, then myself in, in Australia, New Zealand and America. And um, I did an engineering degree because the logic appealed to me and Quite frankly, Alexander, I didn't know what I really wanted to do at the time. I knew there was something in the mining industry. And that was a quick way to get into the management of the mining industry. When I graduated with an honours degree in, in uh, mining engineering, I then decided I'd better go and learn something because I'd worked in the mines underground and in the surface mines uh, over Christmas vacation, the summer break. And I realised the real learning was not university, the real learning was at the coalface. So I worked un underground and one open cut mine, but other four, four underground mines around Australia, learning the practical aspects and the people aspects. And then I went to America and learned uh, how not to manage coal mines and how to manage coal mines. I worked for two different companies and they were chalk and cheese. One focused on being the best and they didn't make much money. The other focused on productivity and they made a lot of money. So that I really loved the, the management and the leadership and the fact that I believe that as managers, we are there to serve the people. That doesn't mean we let people run the show, but we listen to people because a manager enables people to work and to work more productively. Um, and so that was the way I, I went through management. And I was very successful at every mine that, that I, I went to as a manager. I turned it around, improved it, um, and I loved improving the safety in particular. So. Yeah, I missed the days of actually being a miner before I got into, into management and being at the coalface. It's, it's really hard to explain, but it's working underground, uh, remote with, a hand, with a seven or eight people in a team. Um, and, and basically you make all the decisions on, on your own uh, and, and as a team, and uh, I miss that. So um, politics is, uh, well, I work very well as a team with Pauline. We'd like a few more people in our team. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, politics is, is about, uh, what's it about? It's about looking good, not doing good for the major parties. And, and being in Canberra is like swimming in treacle. It is just so damn frustrating. You know, being someone who makes a decision and get, gets on with it, that doesn't happen in Canberra. So, and you've got to play games, not, not play the games, but you've got to put up with people playing games to stifle you, to throw you off the scent. Um, but once, once we've worked that out, 
then it becomes uh, interesting as to how we can chase them down. Well, I imagine for somebody who is goal-oriented, who likes to solve a problem directly and to find an answer reasonably quickly, Canberra must be a nightmare where the entire purpose is not to find answers and not to solve things if you're most of the major parties. That would frustrate people <laughs> intensely. But I've always wondered what it must be like to stand there in the coal mines and see the heart of the nation's wealth and where it lies. I mean, all I get to see is the, the occasional coal train runs past my house every now and then you see um, carriage after carriage of the, of the coal running toward the ports of the coast. But it must be extraordinary to actually see where the wealth of this nation actually comes from. It is, and, and uh, I can remember as a mine manager, uh, I rarely got cranky with individuals because there's just no point to it. I mean, most people, you give them a go and they'll get on with it. But I remember one miner at, at West Wall's End number two mine, he said to me, what would I know, I'm just a miner. And I said, I never want to hear you say that word again, not just a miner. See the lights that are on, we had electric lights underground, you know, see the lights that are on, the lights that are on at home, the cars that people drive, the steel that's made into those cars, that comes from this damn coal mine. And, and so be very, very proud of what you're earning. Uh, at that time, Australia, Australia's number one export income earner was coal. I think it is, is now still the number one export income earner, but it flips and flops with, with iron ore. But we, we are serving the whole world. We are the second largest exporters of coal now. China, China produces almost nine times what we produce, and they import more of our coal. So coal is just so damn wonderful. You know, the best friend of whales is coal, because we used to burn whale oil before we had coal fired electricity lighting our homes. The best, fr best friend of the, of the forests and, and trees is coal because we used to burn timber for our heating and for our cooking until we got coal. Now we're, we've got coal, every, every piece of, every one of these phones contains coal. Every piece of steel contains coal. Every piece of food that you eat contains, uh, has been made somewhere using, using steel which is made from coal. Coal has been the number one driver for the huge improvements in longevity of life, lifestyle, comfort, ease, security. And, and coal is just is such a wonderful energy product because it is high energy density. That's what gives it its, its success. That's why it's so, so cheap to produce coal-fired power. I have a so, feeling um, that uh, the... Uh, yeah, I, I, think I really impress it. I think the European Union is still burning uh, their old growth forests in Germany to make power under the uh, guise <laughs> of uh, biofuel and they gave it a five star rating from the UN of being renewable. You know, go work that one out. But I, has your history in the mining world given you a better grasp of the real engineering limitations of energy generation? Because it seems to me that there are a lot of politicians running around that think they can regulate markets and create energy out of thin air, but no amount of virtue signaling, <laughs> Senator, can turn a single light on. Well, Alexandra, I'm a very big believer in free markets because the number one, I just mentioned that coal has played a dramatic role in improving the environmental standards in, in the world. Um, dramatic improvement in, in uh, lifestyle and longevity of life and ease and security of life. But coal has, has also given us enormous benefits in terms of freedom, but in turn freedom is essential for the development of, of human progress. For humans to progress, we must be free because the number one thing that humans have is care. The number two thing that we have is our creativity and our ability to reason. 
unlike any other animal. And so with those two, you might come up with an idea, you share that through freedom of speech. I, I get your idea, I blow it up and make it out of proportion. And then we share it with someone else and they make a fortune out of it, serving people's needs. Bureaucrats cannot ever, ever understand a market. They cannot because it's just physically impossible for one person to do so. But the, what did Adam Smith call it? The invisible hand of the market. The invisible hand understands what's going on. And if, 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 you, if, if you find Toyota's better, then Toyota gets an improvement in, in their market share, which is exactly what we've seen. Holden and Ford are no longer uh, significant players in Australia. Well, Ford somewhat, but not Holden anymore, not General Motors, because Toyota built a better product. And, and to, build, to knock Toyota off, there's someone else have to build a better product than Toyota. So the, the dead hand of the, the bureaucrats comes in and they destroy markets. What we've got to do is get the best form of government is small government, especially small central government. We've got to get the federal government back to doing what it should be doing, just limited role, defence, foreign affairs, um, not taxation, defence, foreign affairs, uh, trade, and there's one other one, um, foreign affairs. Well, well markets are but basically... Get, get the rest, of the rest of the duties back to states. Markets are effectively artificial intelligence because they are an ecosystem based upon millions of little intelligent individual ideas working together to create a better outcome, something that a bureaucrat can never micromanage from the top down because they can't make those individuals' decisions. But look, there are plenty of politicians out there who have very little experience of the topics they have been put in charge of. I mean, look at uh, Jim, I'm going to reimagine capitalism charmers or Anthony Nye. I didn't bother reading at Albanese. They're the two that strike me at the moment. I've said this on the show before, but you'd have to be half mad to move into politics voluntarily. What caused you, Senator, to decide to switch from engineering, which you clearly loved, into being a senator? Were you kidnapped? What happened? Well, I, we went, my family and I went over to New Zealand to turn around a, a mine over there. And when I came, that was in 2005. When I came back, it was early 2006, Alexandra, and they were talking about this climate change being due to, due to coal-fired power and oil and gas. And, and I thought, this is absolute crap. And so I started researching it and I realised it was crap. Uh, and then I thought, who's little old me to, to know this? Thousands of politicians and thousands of scientists know far more. And I realised they didn't because I challenge people to debates, I challenge people to provide the data, no one could. Uh, and I realised it was just a sham. And so I started speaking up about it around the country and um, Pauline heard me once and asked me to, to join her at a forum. And then she asked me to stand in the Senate uh, ticket beside her. And that's how I entered politics. So I was never really, I was interested in politics, but never really interested in being part of it. But uh, it was just a natural progression because I can't stand what they're doing to our society uh, by demonising the, the, the number one driver for human progress. Well, that's the right reason to enter politics. The uh, wrong reason would be money and power, which I suspect is what a lot of the uh, seat warmers in the Liberals <laughs> and the Labor Party, and particularly the Teals, might say if I was to ask them that question. But I love to visit Wikipedia to see what kind of nonsense they've printed about my guests. Senator Alex Antic had some pretty amusing headlines sitting in there. But according to the source of all knowledge, uh, you engage in fringe global warming conspiracy theories. That's the best they could come up with. 
with. But Senator, these are the same people who stand in front of cameras and declare a new era of global boiling. I mean, has political language across the Western world entered a heightened state of exaggeration and propaganda? Or has it always been this bad? It's always been dishonest, but now we've got it really far-fetched because um, I, I moved a matter of public importance the, um, the other day in the Senate. Uh, it was about four weeks ago. And the Greens just did not even bother responding because we'd been belting them. Um, when you're talking about the world's going to be boiling and, and drying and all the rest of it, I mean, people are just now seeing right through it. One of the best things for us um, in terms of, um, wasn't, wasn't the best thing for the country, but one of the best things was to see the UN and the Labor and Liberal parties driving the COVID mismanagement uh, of the last three, three years. Because people are seeing that is orchestrated internationally, globally. And we now have the proof of that. And we saw all the slogans coming out in lockstep around the world, similar policies coming out lockstep, similar policies going against domestic policies that had been articulated prior to, to, a, uh, to COVID's arrival. Uh, and, and so what we saw was people realised, hang on, this is orchestrated. This is nonsense. This is detrimental. And there, there's a global control going on. And then the globalists started to, to uh, admit that. And people said, hang on, this is similar to climate. And they can now start seeing the global control that's, being, that's driving the, the uh, climate scam. So COVID was a wonderful wake up for a lot of people. We've probably gone from five people being awake to 5% of people being awake to 15%. We need to get to 30, but it's been a wonderful boost. And now, the, now that they're losing traction on climate, they're, they're upping the, uh, the, the hype, the ridicule. Um, and, and so they're, they're helping us to, to help people wake up. And we've seen the World Economic Forum in Davos uh, last January. There's so much ridicule about that. Some of the independent media went there, Avi Yemeni, Rukshan, uh, Ezra Levant from Canada and others. And people are just laughing about these, these globalists now. So that's, it's been a wonderful last three years in, in terms of waking people up. Well, the great thing about uh, speech and propaganda is it goes both ways. And the last time the World Health Organization tried to drum up a bit of support for their monkeypox uh, pandemic, what happened was everyone on the internet created monkey memes. So it didn't, it didn't exactly go the way they hoped it would go. But language may be the least of our problems when Labor's misinformation and disinformation bill becomes law. Now, censorship has always enjoyed support from Labor, Liberals, Greens and Teals. The entire political landscape, aside from parties like One Nation, are keen to shut the public up. Now, what do you think, Senator? Why are your peers in Parliament so keen to take out the duct tape and keep the rest of the public quiet? But it's the age-old battle, Alexandra, between control and freedom. That's, that, that occurs within each of us, between us as, as two people, uh, between groups of people, between nations. It's a, it's a source of war, control versus freedom. And people who want the easy way out seek control because always beneath control there is fear. They fear the masses. They fear brighter ideas. They fear people being exposing them. So control is a response to fear. Now, freedom is actually takes a lot of work to get it moving, but once it's moving, life is far easier for everyone. That's why I've always backed freedom. And, and ultimately, 
the universe is on my side or I'm on the side of the universe because ultimately it always ends up being freer. What I want to avoid is the pain of getting to that point where we lose our freedom and we have to control inserted, then we have a decline in, in living standards, decline in, in livelihoods, decline of lifestyle, and then people fall into misery, then from misery comes, ap uh, comes uh, oh, what's the word? Um, uh, I, oh, I slip me, you, you, get, you get anarchy, anarchy. From, and then anarchy leads to a strong leader, then anarchy leads to um, a strong leader, it leads to democracy again. It's gone through a cycle all, all through history. And so what I want to do is to try and avoid um, that, that anarchy, that dis dismantling of our society and, and rekindle freedom because freedom is the solution to just about every single problem. It is essential for responsibility. You cannot have responsibility without choice and you cannot have choice without freedom. And that's why freedom is so important. It, it leads to human progress. The number one thing for my list of, of uh, factors driving human progress is freedom. And so people who are afraid shut it down. That's the Liberal Party, that's the Labor Party. They're focused on maintaining their majorities or their control of politics because they're looking after some big players in the, in the background. But what you're effectively saying is that freedom and tyranny exist in a cycle and you'd rather not go through the whole starvation, poverty, war, revolution, back to freedom. You'd rather just skip to the end and maintain freedom. It'd be much more sensible if we could evolve as a civilization and just go to the end of that equation. But we first saw the rise of serious censorship during the COVID pandemic when the government, not just ours, but Western governments all around the world, leaned on social media platforms to delete the victims of Big Pharma. It was a terrible, undemocratic and morally repugnant thing to do, and yet we have never been issued with an apology from the government. But you, Senator, worked tirelessly then and now for medical liberty and basic civil liberty. Has it been difficult to go to war with the full force of the global medical bureaucracy and even against the majority of parliament? No, it hasn't been difficult, and I say that honestly. It's, it's like swimming through treacle for the reasons we've just mentioned, because the global bureaucracy is, is even worse than the, than the Canberra bureaucracy. But it's, it's always easy, I, and I've got a wonderful person with me in Pauline Hanson. She just says, tell the truth. My mother and father said, just tell the truth. It has hurt me at times telling the truth, but it's always, made, uh, always been beneficial longer term. So it's, it's not at all difficult to just tell the truth. Um, it is sometimes a matter of restraint to get the data first so that we can be, because COVID, I mean, they were smashing people, they were killing people, the government. And so it was, it was, it was almost an impulse to just go out and defend, but we had to get the data. That's what held us back at times, to get the data and then tell the truth. And, and so it, it's not at all difficult at all. And I mean that sincerely. It, it, is, it is the only thing I can do to just tell the truth and, and work for the good. Well, you've been leading inquiries into the COVID years and you've made progress, but can you tell us anything in particular that stood out to you whilst you've been conducting these questions or anything that you've learned that you think the public would be fascinated to know? I haven't learned a lot. There, there are many, many facts that we've learned or had confirmed, uh, but I go back to Zuby, the rapper at the CPAC conference last year. And he put a list, a wonderful presentation, very intelligent, well-spoken man, 
and he put up a presentation saying 23 things I've had confirmed in COVID. And one of those 23 things was that people, so was that politicians don't care if people live or die. And that's the thing that has really got to me. Uh, these politicians, these bureaucrats, the TGA, the Department of Health, they do not care if more people die needlessly in the future. They do not care about the suffering, suffering and misery of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who've been injured by these injections. Why don't they care? Because if they started to care and they started to deal with the facts, their backsides would get sore from the people kicking them. They know they've done wrong, but they, are not, they haven't got the courage to look. And they would rather people die, they'd rather people continue in misery, they'd rather livelihoods be smashed. We've, we've just seen the mandates removed in Queensland Health just, just now. And so what it's really confirmed with me is the gutless, ignorant, stupid politicians who just won't look. And that, that really fires me up. Um, but we're starting to see a change in the Senate in terms of people are now dropping their heads that they, they won't. When, when I stand up or Senator Rennick stands up or Senator Pauline Hanson stands up and, and starts talking about these things, we don't get yelled at and labelled. Instead, we get opposition and, and government dropping their heads and the Greens dropping their heads and silence. They know we're on track and we, we will get these. I think they know very well that the whole world is turning on the COVID narrative, particularly what's coming out of Europe, which is going to be particularly damaging for some of the things that were said and done in Australia. But Labor came to power promising a royal commission into COVID and instead we got an expensive referendum on race politics, which isn't quite the same thing they promised. Do you think we'll ever get to see a royal commission into the COVID years? Yes, we will. And I go back to um, 2016, 2017. Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister and he said as Prime Minister 16 times, there will not be a Royal Commission into the financial services sector. Scott Morrison was Treasurer and he said 26 times, there will not be a Royal Commission into the financial services sector. And what happened was Pauline Hanson negotiated with Malcolm Turnbull to get a a Senate select inquiry into lending to primary production customers. And she put me in, in uh, as chair and I went straight to Wacker Williams and, and he was vice uh, deputy chair. And, and we worked together. We set up a collaborative framework, a multi-bipartisan multi, uh, approach. We made a video encouraging people to, to give us um, submissions. We then went out into the bush and, and helped people make submissions. We then went into the bush before each hearing. We had our first hearings in the bush uh, Charters Towers, Roma, Perth, and Perth's not quite the bush, but it was, it was where the bush came to in, in Western Australia from the farming regions in WA. Uh, and we, we collected information from those hearings. We went out the day before and helped, helped school people to do their, their, their hearings and have confidence and just realised I'm just another human, uh, even though I was the chair of a Senate Select Inquiry. And we collected so much information, Alexandra, that we then took on the banks in Sydney and the um, banks in, in Canberra. And we got so much dirt out into the open that members of the National Party um, took our, our, our committee inquiry recommendations to the government and said, if you don't, if you don't have a Royal, a Royal Commission into the financial services sector, you will get this jammed down your throat, uh, our, our report. Uh, and that recommended a Royal Commission. Next thing you know, rather than be embarrassed, uh, Malcolm Turnbull announced the Royal Commission into the, I think it was the Hain Royal Commission into financial services sector. And um, 
That's the same thing that we'll, we'll do. We will wear these people down because we've got the sheer weight of evidence, the sheer number of fatalities and excess deaths, and the sheer atrocities that have been committed by the Department of Health, the TGA, uh, ATAGI, and these other bureaucrats, state and federal level, uh, the chief medical officers, chief health officers, these people know that it's coming and we will get that Royal Commission. In fact, I made a, a matter of public importance some time ago and everyone, and I, I was calling for a Royal Commission, and every single speaker, Labor Party, Greens, Liberals, all said we need a Royal Commission. Just not yet. You know, so it will come, Alexandra. You know what will happen? Eventually, public pressure will get so bad that the government will need to find a few little scapegoats to get rid of the news stories and the bad headlines and then they'll get a royal commission so they can find out exactly where to pin that blame as long as it's not on themselves. But our government took the lead from the World Health Organization during COVID but I must admit, it's a shame because Senator Roberts, the idea of a World Health Organization to promote the sharing of medical knowledge and, and fund advancements is not a bad idea on paper, but it has become something wildly different since then, a sort of unhinged entity using the medical industry as an express lane to global power. Do you believe that faith in organisations like the World Health Organisation, like the United Nations, has been permanently damaged by its behaviour during COVID? And if so, does our country need to change the way it negotiates and deals with these global authorities? Yes, it does. Um, the, the, the reputation of, of global health authorities has really plummeted. It's collapsed. Um, that doesn't mean our bureaucrats think that yet, but we need to change the way we deal with them. At the moment, some of these UN treaties are literally um, scrutinised by a committee and then noted, which means they're adopted. It doesn't even have to go through Parliament. Others have to go through Parliament. Um, so that we've now got a population that's much more switched on. We've got a significant percentage, probably 15%, maybe 30%, who will take up the battle against the World Health Organization and take up the battle with members of parliament and change their views on that. We had the, the cash ban bill which came in and my office led the charge in um, with the crossbench. We got the crossbench awakened. Uh, we, then, we then worked on the Labor Party, lost that battle. The Labor Party and Liberal Party passed the cash ban through the lower house. But then we worked with uh, the grassroots members of the Labor Party and Liberal Party who put so much pressure on Labor Party and Liberal Party senators that the bill, I eventually moved a motion to get rid of it off the Senate list and it's got rid of, it was got rid of. That's what we need with the disinformation, misinformation bill and that's what we need with any, any further encroachments by the World Health Organization. And I believe that that pressure is mounting and a lot of us here in Australia have contributed to that, that pressure mounting globally and the World Health Organization has pulled back considerably. We don't want any more advancement over what it did in 2005. We want to go back to that. But, but their original target has been, has been scaled right back. So we can see that people pressure and people power, it does work. It does work with politicians because politicians are scared of numbers.
Yeah, well, I think people are a little bit tired of discovering that their lives are being run by unelected bureaucracies sitting in other countries, namely a Swiss ski lodge somewhere they meet every year, like some kind of Bond villain camp. It's not what you want to hear from your democracy. But there's an article out today that I saw stating that the government spent $500 billion on the pandemic, but that pales in comparison to what they intend to spend on climate change, which will be in the order of trillions of dollars. Both of these topics are saturated with corporate interest. Now, you've just been to Gladstone. There's a, the, I think it's Australia's largest solar farm has just been approved to be built there. A mere 70 kilometres from the Great Barrier Reef. A lot of people are very upset about what's going on and how the countryside is being ruined. Victoria has got huge transmission lines running from their wind farms across paddocks and, and uh, natural strips of land that has upset the Greens. Even they're unhappy. Are you concerned that politics is using public money for so many of these big renewable energy projects and putting it into the pockets of these companies instead of acting in the public interest? Because I'm not seeing a lot of public people being happy with their coastlines being butchered by wind turbines and farmland coated in solar panels. Yes, we can, we can see the people starting to, up, to rise up now. Uh, Chalumban, near Ravenshoe, up in North Queensland. Uh, Gladstone, central Queensland, near Stanwell. Uh, Wide Bay, Burnett uh, region of, of southern Queensland. Uh, southern New South Wales. People are really are very, very upset about this. Transmission lines, everything that you don't want in the electricity sector is represented by solar and wind and the, the, the associated huge uh, army battalions of transmission lines that are running across, that are planned to run across our country and destroy rainforests, destroy pristine environments, destroy farm habitat, destroy local communities. People are now starting to see there is that enormous cost. They're, not, they're starting to feel, but they don't yet see it, the cost in, in, their, in their hip pockets with, with huge energy bills. Everywhere around the world, wherever solar and wind have played a higher proportion, uh, played a, a bigger role in the uh, electricity generation, there have been huge increases in, in cost of electricity. Australia has gone from being the cheapest uh, provider of electricity in the world to now amongst the most expensive because we've introduced solar and wind. We have got the, the highest level of per capita subsidies in the world, double number two, which is the United States. So this is destroying our electricity sector. So we will see not only the environment being tarnished, but people ri continuing to rise up as they are now, but also a lot more people will upset when lights go out, hospital theatres get shut down, schools get, get shut down because of lack of electricity. And this will happen. Factories getting shut down, people out of work, and we get huge power bills that, uh, that make cost of living impossible. And that the electricity cost cascades throughout, through, through the economy because electricity is, a, is, a, is an input in every single uh, step of a manufacturing process, every single uh, part of the cascade of a manufacturing product. Well, Queensland could not have a better senator than you, Malcolm Roberts, at a time when engineering and the electrical grid is going to become the major source of politics because the projects that I've seen unleashed by the Queensland Labor government have contained some of the largest uh, renewable energy transmission lines and solar panels that we have ever seen. One of them is the largest in the world. And so we're about to see vast tracts of the Queensland landscape transformed into these hellscapes. And I think the biggest problem is going to be the transmission lines because they are crisscrossing 
thousands and thousands of kilometres of people's land. I mean, what I struck me as interesting when I read the articles is the people whose land is being impacted, they say the same thing every time. I'm all for solar, I love green energy, I'm totally on board with the whole climate change thing, but I don't want it in my backyard. But the fact is, Senator, it's going to have to be in somebody's backyard. Do you think reality of what these projects look like is starting to hit home to Queenslanders and are they starting to realise that these things are not actually very green after all? Yes, that reality is hitting home. It's hitting home in the north, in the central Queensland, in the southern Queensland, southern New South Wales, western Victoria, eastern Victoria. That reality is hitting home. I don't, I don't automatically go in support of coal. I go in, clearly always in support of the cheapest form of energy. That is usually hydro, where there's water. We don't have sufficient water, but Canada is blessed with that. China is blessed with that. Um, other countries are blessed with that. They use hydro. If you can't use hydro, you don't have the water for hydro, the cheapest form of electricity is coal. And there's a reason for that. Coal is very high energy density. It releases a lot of energy very, very cheaply. Now, the next cheapest form is nuclear. And nuclear is even higher density, but there are other cost factors involved in, in, in um, containing nuclear. So nuclear is the third. What I would like to see is a, a, a return to using the cheapest power source. Solar and wind are prohibitively expensive. They're prohibitively expensive and only stupid people, dishonest people believe in them, unless you're off the grid, then they have some, some role. But even so, off the grid, it's, it's probably better to have a diesel power state, diesel uh, generator than a solar panel because of the cost you need in batteries and, the, and, and, and huge capital costs of solar. So what I say is go for the number one factor, which is the, the the price, the cheapness of electricity generation, number two, reliability, number three, security, number four, stability of the grid. Everything points to coal, nuclear and hydro. Nothing points to wind and solar. The best, um, the best environmental impact is from coal. The, the, the worst environmental impact is from solar and wind. They are facts. Uh, Alexandra, it's a simple fact that Alex Epstein pr provides in his book, um, the moral case for fossil fuels for a, um, I think it's a megawatt of electricity you need 546 tonnes of steel for a wind turbine from wind turbines from coal it's 35 tonnes of steel that's 15 and a half times more steel goes into producing power from wind turbines than from coal that's why coal is far far more, more uh, competitive than wind will ever be wind has an, an absurdly low energy density. Solar panels have absurdly low energy de density. Physics and the natural environment show us that. Nothing can get over that. It's, it's just insanity. So we need to come back to using the cheapest form of electricity because the number one factor in human progress uh, over the last 170 years has been the relentless decreases in price of energy uh, due to coal, oil and natural gas and nuclear until about 30 years ago when John Howard came to power and then since then it's been costs have gone up, gone up artificially. It's actually quite interesting that you talk about diesel in remote communities because part of those articles explained that these new hundreds of billions of dollars that we're spending on renewable energy and re-electrifying the grid in Queensland is not going to put a single remote community who's using diesel 
onto the grid. You wonder why, like perhaps the Queensland government should have spent a little bit of time bringing remote communities into the 19th century rather than putting the rest of Queensland back into the dark ages. I mean, you've got the same problem that we have here in New South Wales, where so many of your communities still have gravel and sand roads, not even tarred roads. This is the kind of standards that people are living with, despite politicians claiming to live in this new, major, developed, magical world that they exist in their tiny little city bubbles. But moving on from that, we're heading toward this age of uh, digital uh, stalking and tracking. We've seen Nigel Farage, he was debanked by Nat West, which was an astonishing development. Are we in danger of heading towards a situation where we've got a fully fledged social credit system in this country, where if you eat a steak, you might get a, an extra 2% increase on your home loan repayments? Like, are we heading toward China's idea of how to control the population? Yes, we are. Um, but that's only because the people as a whole, including you and me as, as part of the population, we are asleep. And we're starting to wake up thanks to COVID. We're starting to wake up thanks to high energy prices. We're starting to put the finger on the real problem, which is the government. The central government in Canberra has got far too much power and far too much authority. And, and power and authority are abused when they're, when they're so tightly, um, tightly located. So. We, we've got to help the people to wake up and, and, and oppose the digital, digital, um, digital identity, the digital transformation that's coming. People are starting to realise but these, these things make life so much easier, but at the same time they can be easily used to control people. And what, what's happening is, Alexandra, we're, we're sleepwalking into, into digital control because sometimes life is just so much easier and that's why I now, for example, instead of using a credit card, wherever possible, I use cash. I take more cash out of the bank, I carry it with me, and I hand over cash when I buy something. So that's, these things will lull us into a false sense of security, and then when we go completely digital currency, bang, it's cut off. And that's when, that's the threshold to getting um, the social credit systems. So what I'm doing now is encouraging people to use cash, and I use cash myself. We have got to forsake what seems to be convenience in the short term for loss of everything and loss of control in the future, loss of our freedoms in the future. Well, convenience is an addiction and it's particularly developed in our younger generations, which is a real shame because instead of producing something and making a go of their lives, they seem to be a, this, uh, live in these little bubbles and worlds where all they want to do is like things on social media and get that dopamine hit without actually creating anything for the new world. But with any luck, uh, you will be looking forward to another term, which means that you are going to be in politics for the long haul, Senator Roberts. There are plenty of people who helped to fashion this political nightmare that we live in, who are mysteriously resigning, stepping down, hiding in the back seats or getting little cushy seats in the, some of these corporations. But what do you see for the future of Australian politics in the next 10 years? I think as government gets worse, um, I think the people will start to wake up and then hold politicians accountable. I'm hoping they will. And, and then I think we'll start to see more and more minor parties represented in politics. I think we'll start seeing One Nation on the, cross, on, on the um, balance of power at state and federal levels. Uh, people, you know, when I, when I was a, a boy, I was told that um, 
45% of people voted Labor and 45% voted Liberal. That's 10% swung and they de determined who was in power. Then it became 40%, 40%. Then it became 35, 35. Uh, and now it's less than 33% voted primary vote for the Labor Party in the last federal election and around 34% for the Liberal National Party. So in the 2019 Senate election in Queensland, the Labor Party got 22%. They got one senator. It used to be three Labor, three Liberal, almost uniquely, almost universally. And, and now Labor and, and, the, and the Liberals are falling. We've now got 12 Green senators, which is a real nightmare. We've got uh, two, four, five, six, inter six, six small parties. Uh, and I think that'll grow um, in, in the future. So I think the, as the Senate starts reflecting the, the mood of the Australian people, and that's what's so good about the Senate because it has got proportional representation, um, then, then I think we'll start seeing more and more negotiation of what's really going on. And, and, and people won't, won't be just the Liberal Party show or the Labor Party show, it'll be the crossbenchers heavily involved. And so I think there's, there's hope for that. If we can get more small parties into the Senate, that'll be one way. The second way of, of showing hope for this country is getting, is the people waking up and realising just how much they've been abused by the central government in Canberra. Well, give us a little bit of hope to finish with here, Senator Malcolm Roberts. Can Australians look forward to having a return of their unified, wealthy and free country that they remember from their childhood? Are we going back there? That depends on the people of Australia. And that's the beauty of a democracy. We get what we deserve. And, and if the people are, continue to sleep, um, then, then we will get what we deserved and we'll have a destruction of our, of our country. If the people wake up as they're starting to, as we're starting to, I shouldn't be using the word they, you and I are part of the population, Alexandra. Uh, with you doing your job, we see a, a resurgence in independent media, uh, your, your channel. We also see independent news, news, um, news producers, news uh, publishers in this country, uh, many Real Ruction uh, and, uh, and others. Um, we see that around the world. We now have an, an alternative to the mouthpiece media, the Big Brother media. We have, uh, we have independent, uh, independent media coming up. So that's helping to educate people. We see the people becoming more and more aware of, of alternatives. We see the people becoming more and more uh, awake. And I think that that'll, that'll hold well for us in the future, providing we can continue to spread the news. And so that's why we, we need your TV program to really go wild. And what can people do to support you, Senator, if they want to help the One Nation cause? Well, they can put pressure on their local MPs, federal and state, to hold them accountable and tell them to, to adopt our policies, to adopt real measures and tell the truth about climate, about COVID, about immigration. We, we have got so many people. We have, I think it's 1.2 million people coming into the country uh, in the next year or so. Uh, the Labor Party says 400,000 plus, it's well above that. Uh, so it's up to the people to wake up, that's what they can do, share the information with each other, uh, vote of course for One Nation uh, in elections, state and federal, and, uh, and, and support us on our social media so that we are seen to have more clout and more, more impact when, we, when we're speaking in Parliament.
Yes, if you're in a One Nation seat, make sure that you can vote for Malcolm Roberts if you wish to support One Nation or just share the content online. I encourage you to look at his Twitter account and Facebook. There's a lot of great information there, particularly if you are a liberty-minded Australian. Well, Senator, thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome, Alexander, anytime. Thank you very much for what you're doing. Thank you. And that's all we have time for here on Marshall Live. Catch you next week.